0: What to know podcast explores best practices innovation and latest trends with industry experts with an eye toward helping you the listener stay ahead of the ever-changing marketing and communications landscape
1: good afternoon this is aaron strout cmo of w2o group and the host of the what to know podcast show and today we have a special celebratory one-year anniversary episode where we're going to bring you some highlights from the Uh, best of uh, or the most interesting shows over the last year. Certainly too many to cover, but uh, I've worked with the team to pull out some clips and uh, hopefully you will enjoy walking down memory lane. And for those of you that have not listened to some of these, this will give you a good opportunity to go back and uh, take a listen to some of the sessions we've done before. The first episode I want to highlight is an interview that I did at um, John Battelle's Shift Forum, which uh, is timely because it's starting again next week. And this was with the singer and CEO, Ryan Leslie. He is the co-founder of Superphone. Um, He is an amazing gentleman. I think if I remember correctly, he is one of the few people that got perfect scores on his SATs. But uh, one of the things that I was really fascinated with is that he gives out his phone number on social channels and uh, during our interview talked a little bit about what that looked like um, the response that it evoked and sort of how that's played a role in building his social following so take a quick listen to his response to my question about how super works and the metrics of
2: success i'll give my phone number right now it's 646-887-6927 You send me a text right now. My phone will recognize that if we haven't exchanged a message before, I don't have your info, so I'll just ask for your info. Ninety percent, no, sorry, ninety nine percent of people who text me and my phone says, "Hey, who is this?" They'll give me their info, and so thirty five thousand people texted me over the course of a year of my two hundred eighty thousand Instagram followers. Thirty five thousand people texted me. Thirty three thousand people responded to that first prompt, gave me their info and one out of every two of those people when I suggested that they support my latest project actually did so, so that's a 50% conversion rate.
1: Next up, and this is someone that's become one of my favorite people on earth, but Jesse Draper, who's the host and creator of the Valley Girl Show and also the founder of Halogen Ventures, which is probably her more important contribution to society. It's um, a a fund that focuses on investing in female CEOs and um, leaders, um, founders rather. And during the show, uh, we talked a little bit about the criteria of who would be successful as an entrepreneur? And this is a question I like to ask a lot of the VCs that I am able to interview. And not surprisingly, um, she talked a little bit about the importance of the founder themselves. And so with that, I'll let you listen to her answer
2: it's about a founder every, you know, I think it's important at this stage, you are definitely betting on people and the team. I like to see co-founders who have complementary skills, but one of the more unique things I think that I look for is, um, uh, someone labeled it as coachability the other day, but I look at it, it's, to me, it's sort of bigger than that, where, um, I want to know that you are so, um, open, that you, you know, you start a company, you can't plan on going in one direction the whole time. Every company pivots, you go in many different directions. I want to know that you're going to sit there across the table from me and build this crazy, enormous idea for a company.
1: One of the other very impressive people that I spoke to, not that there aren't, um, they aren't all impressive, is Colonel William Reeder Jr., who I met at Bob Grupp's StratCom Summit last year. He's an author and a consultant and talks a lot about leadership, and so I was able to sit down with him at the conference and squeezed in a quick interview. And during this, we talked a little bit about his time in the military and, in particular, some of the grueling experiences he had as a POW during the Vietnam War. The thing I was so impressed with is that He managed to take what would be, to most people, a horrific experience that most of us would like to block out and really turned it into a positive, which now he uses to guide some of the leadership traits that he talks about. And uh, with that, we'll talk a little about his focus on attitude and how that helped um, him with his survival. Attitude was at the core of my survival. Uh, I've always been a positive person. I'm not sure why. I had a somewhat troubled youth, but I've still I've been a positive person my whole life. In captivity, I maintained that positive attitude. Uh, the other American that was with me did not. He, he had a, uh, a, a negative attitude on, on a lot of things and would see the worst when I'd see the best. We'd be uh, hiking up the Ho Chi Minh Trail uh, on this forced march, and I'd just make some stupid joke. At the uh, you know, In fact, the, the last uh, the last item on my survival steps as a, as a prisoner of war is maintain a sense of humor. And sometimes my sense of humor is a bit sick, but I'd come up with these stupid jokes, and Wayne would just scowl at me. Uh, but in the end, that attitude helped bring me through and that attitude I think was part of him not being able to survive. Next up, because I like to keep the types of companies and the types of leaders that I speak to diverse, we had Dawoon Kong, who is the COO and head of marketing at Coffee Meets Bagel, which is a, um, female focused dating app. And, uh, I was quite impressed because Dawoon founded this company with her two sisters And one of the things that she and her sisters have really um, helped do a nice job with is creating the best experience for all the parties participating in the online dating experience, including kicking off with a video versus just with pictures and profiles. And so, you know, during our interview, she talked a little bit about uh, what it was, you know, what the experience was that they created at Coffee Meets Bagel and, and how that played a role in the development of their product.
3: We really need to create a product experience and branding that really speaks to women Um, and that's why we've decided to focus on delivering on quality and safety which we know are two most important things that women care about when it comes to dating and um, i'm really proud to say that we are actually one of the three dating apps out there of all the dating apps um, that have more women than men
1: Not only winner of CBS's Survivor uh, and a motivational speaker, but Adam Klein is probably one of the most energetic, and I mean that in a positive way, guests that I've ever had on the show. We had him on in advance of a benefit that he was speaking at, and um, Adam is just an amazing gentleman. During the show, or during our episode, he talked a little bit about his time on Survivor and how... During that time, his mom was dying of cancer, um, lung cancer, ironically, even though she never smoked or did anything, and it was the the picture of healthiness. So uh, during this, he talks a little bit about how he's using his platform from Survivor to advocate for his mother and spread awareness about this important but horrible disease, lung cancer.
0: I come back from Survivor, and I know that a few months later, not only my story, but the story of my family and my mom would be told on national television. And so in those moments, you know, you you sort of have an opportunity to to, to make something out of it or to sit on your hands. Uh, And I knew that if people were going to be hearing about my mom, that we should dedicate that visibility towards something meaningful.
1: So, I was lucky enough to meet Aaron Sanchez, who is an award winning chef and TV personality and author, uh, at a restaurant in New Orleans several years ago. And when I reached out to him, I was pleasantly surprised to have him respond that he was open to doing an interview with me for this show. Um, during this, uh, there are a lot of things that I'm impressed with, with Chef Aaron, but the thing that I was really intrigued by was he has such a great, um, methodology to how he uses social channels to engage his customers, uh, and, and stakeholders. And so during his clip here, we're going to talk a little bit about how he thinks about the different social channels and which channels he uses for which objectives.
4: For me, Facebook is really about engaging in video and teaching and, um, like that's for me. What Facebook's about, you know. Like my grandmother, you know, you know, right before she passed, she was like, loved, you know, Facebook and all my family in Mexico stay in touch with me through Facebook. So <clears throat> that platform for me is more about teaching. Twitter's more about my my, my shows and you know different kind of uh, tips that I want to give, whether it's like a recipe or you know, how to put together awesome fiesta, you know, that's what I used kind of Twitter for. And then Instagram is just super visual and mostly restaurant food um, and kind of like the whole food porn thing, you know what I mean? So that's kind mm-hmm. of
3: how I use each one of those.
1: So this next interviewee is someone that I've become uh, very fond of, and he is one of the smartest gentlemen you'll ever meet. Uh, I actually did not interview him for this podcast. Rather, my partner in crime around South by Southwest, our chief innovation officer and vice chair of W2O, Bob Pearson, interviewed Haroon. And uh, ironically, he and Haroon have just written a book together called Countering Hate, which will be out at South by Southwest. Uh, Haroon is currently serving as the chief strategy officer at the Broadcasting Board of Governors, uh, which is an 800-plus million global media agency. And then prior to doing that, he advised three secretaries of state. So most people never even think about one. He's done three. He's written numerous books. Um, take a listen to what Harun Ullah has to say about what we can learn about terrorist recruitment, particularly ISIS, and how that can go into helping us uh, combat hate.
5: I think it's part of it is understanding what are the drivers for why young people might be attracted uh, to this sort of this alternative pathway. And obviously, we, you know, we we see things with such disgust at what they're doing. But when you dig deep to understand their brand, and this gets at my second trend, um, is that we tend to think that extremists like ISIS are selling a very dark, dark narrative that you know it's all about terror and these grizzly images and these beheadings and these gruesome things that they're doing but when you actually look at the data and you look at the what the percentage and you look at what they're putting out on social media every day you find that over 80 percent of what they are putting out is what we would consider positive messaging it's a picture of a a bushel of apples saying the caliphate is bountiful it's it's pictures of them handing out candy to kids Um, it's about governance Um, and so They are messaging and they're taking a page out of, uh, you know, brand folks in terms of micro targeting, because what they're doing is that they are messaging in English to create fear to a Western audience, Uh, largely a North American media centric audience. But English is not even in the top five of the languages that they're most prolific on in terms of social media. It's actually obviously Arabic, number one, Russian and French, number two and three. And so when you start realizing it, then you say, oh, okay, so if you're a young person reading positive messaging, you are a university graduate, can't find a job, you live in South London, and all of a sudden you watch this video that talks about the suffering and that you can be part of something big, something new, without traveling without a passport, that you'll be accepted no matter what, um, that you're part of what they would think of almost as a Muslim Peace Corps, that now you can see how that may be attractive. Right.
1: So another one of my favorites, which happened most recently at CES, uh, is with David Kirkpatrick, who's the CEO and founder of Techconomy. Uh, David is a longtime journalist, wrote a book uh, called The Facebook Effect, and uh, we sat down and talked a little bit about his vision for conferences. He was the founder of something called Brainstorm while he was at Fortune, and how that played a role in the making of Techonomy, which is now a partner of W2O Groups. So take a listen. And, and then I still believe in conferences, and that's why we do Techonomy, which is sort of like what I did with Brainstorm at Fortune, but doing it the way I really think it ought to be done as an independent organization, um, getting together people to talk about the biggest possible questions about how technology is transforming business and society. And there is a connection to my work with Facebook because Zuckerberg made his famous and subsequently apologized for a statement about why it's a crazy idea that fake news affected the election on stage at Techonomy 2016, two days after the election. My next guest, one of the most energetic, fun, uh, interesting people that I've interviewed, a close friend and partner of W2O Group, is Kim Hunter. Kim is the president and CEO at LeGrant Communications um, and also the CEO and founder of LeGrant Foundation uh, we work closely with the LeGrant Foundation, and there are two clips here that I wanted to feature. The first was Kim speaking a little bit about his passion in education and creating a space for that. Uh, clearly, it's something that's very important to all of us, but um, he he really spells out the reason why.
3: But I always tell people education was the centerpiece of who I am. Hence, the reason why um, I make that the signature for everything else. Because I always believe that if you educate a human being, they give you things in life that allows you to question that critical thinking component and ask questions in the marketplace, regardless of what political affiliation, what your gender, what your ethnic group, it allows you to think. And so for me, education is the fundamentals of who I am.
1: And the second one is quite aligned with what Kim does with the LeGrant Foundation. And that's talking about diversity and inclusion and the importance of it, uh, what inspired him to start LeGrant Foundation and speaking a little bit about why leaders um, would be well-served to embrace this concept.
3: Well, the bottom line is diversity, and there's the operative, and inclusion, D&I, um, is a business imperative. And it is those leaders who clearly get it. And I mean get it, not having the client drive it so much. And that's the tragedy of it all. Where I have always said if you go back and Google many of the interviews I've had in the early 90s, in the early 2000, 2001, 2002, I said our industry, the communications industry, will only change when you have true leadership. Saying we need to diversify our workforce. Our workforce cannot be homogeneous. It's got to be more diversified. It cannot be monolithic um, in, in terms of uh, in terms of how you look, in terms of um, your thinking, because you're going to bring a diverse set of new ideas to the table. Because my experience is, as an inner city kid growing up in Philadelphia is going to be different from your experience growing up in the New England area. But that's a good thing to have us all in a room, and we can agree to disagree agree, but clients want brain trust that is going to bring a different set of creative and innovative thought to the table. Um, so for the for me to address some of the uh, the topics that were discussed, and I'm going to use the term um, impatient, and this is a colleague and dear friend and a board member of the Legrand Foundation to ride Neptune at Lenovo. The bottom line is we are not frustrated with the lack of diversity. We're impatient. And as a result of being impatient, now we're going to put people on notice that at the end of the day, if you don't do what we refer to as the right thing, you will be at risk of losing business, you will be at risk of gaining new business, you will be at risk of survival (laughs) at the end of the day. And if it takes leadership to do that, I say more power to you.
1: So next up, Jonathan Bush, CEO and co-founder of Athena Health, a fascinating company, now a client of W2O's. Um, During the conversation that we talk about, and we wedged this in before a talk, he gave at our digital brunch, so it was a little faster than we would have liked. But I asked him uh, a bit about uh, artificial intelligence, and there are certain things like that and AR, VR that get hyped up and and sort of pre-hyped before they're really ready for mainstream. And so he talked a little bit about how the media tends to do this with topics including tech, but also dyslexia, ADHD, and and now AI. So uh, fascinating answer in terms of uh, what the space really looks like and the role that AI is playing.
0: The way you start in AI uh, with any of these things, it's similar, it's agile. You take a piece, you work it, hone it, get it right, if it's really good, you make it an object and combine it with another piece, which you hone and get right. So our experience with AI we have this extraordinary group of uh, machine learning scientists, uh, and they want to cure cancer. They want to do moonshot press releases. But what we started with is, hey, read the faxes. People still live in faxes in medicine in 2017. You know, code the claims. There's only, there's only 6,000 procedure codes. There's 190,000 diagnosis codes. They're all just a combination. Look at the chart, do the mapping, and we can give you humans to compare to, right? Because we've got 105,000 doctors banging out 215 million visits a year. Go do that mundane, practical, tactical crap work, and you will start building jewels, objects of intelligence that can then be used to maybe cure cancer or read radiology images or whatever the funny press releases say that aren't true.
1: So this next one was a dual interview with John Hinshaw and John Orwin of... HP and uh, Relipsa. And they were the co-chairs of the, um, the gala that I had talked about earlier, the American Cancer Foundation. And so during this conversation, we talked about a lot of different things, but the overarching theme was combating cancer with data, tech, and life sciences. And so one of the things that I asked um, to both of them was how technology and smartphones, wearable devices are playing a role in healthcare and also social media. Uh, both of them gave related but interesting responses, uh, in particular drilling down on social media and how that really sort of helped play a role in the therapeutic, the, the sort of um, connecting of people, not therapeutic in the traditional sense, uh, how they battled these diseases. And then also talked a little bit about some of the the trackers and the wearables and how that probably focused more on the preventative side. But I'll let you take a listen to both of their answers.
6: If you think about it, with all the fun that we have in our lives and all that technology has brought us, at the end of the day, the most important thing is how healthy we are as human beings and how long our lives will continue and the quality of that life accordingly based upon the health care that we receive. Both preventative health care, which to your point on all kinds of sensors telling you to walk more steps, or I even have an app on my phone that'll take my EKG now if I need to, which used to require, you know, a trip into the doctor and getting strapped up and all of that. So... I I do think both preventative, it's helpful, but then also um, as we look at, uh, certainly John referenced oncology and and cancer research, the the disease that um, has been the toughest to tackle for most people, that you you see both companies and um, philanthropic leaders of companies start to put more money towards trying to figure out how to help there and how to use data, how to use even if you think about Facebook, you, you referenced Facebook, how to have anybody with a particular disease um that's out there on facebook connect and share real-time experiences. Hey, this is what's working for me. Hey, have you thought about that? Hey, here's a great doctor that has been super helpful to me. Hey, let's collaborate together. So I do think that the the social aspect of the lives we live is actually helping in this fight as well.
4: Yeah, I would just add to that, that fighting cancer in many cases is a a lonely battle that people face. Um, And in the early days, you know, one of the struggles that caregivers and indeed companies that were making medicines for patients struggled with was how to get those patients together and create a sense of community when each of them is feeling as though they're facing, you know, this diagnosis and this challenge alone. One of the earliest applications of social media, and in fact, just the internet itself, um, on the marketing side, was really connecting patients together with each other, with other advocates, um, and with and with caregivers, and so then we can bring that sense of community to patients, and I think that's important. At the complete other end of uh, technology, if we just look at you know some of the wearable technology, uh, like John mentioned, you know the ability to actually tailor the treatment to the patients physiological circumstances is really critical and interesting as well so I recently looked at a technology where you could time the release of nicotine through a patch to the actual uh, sort of diurnal variations and cravings that a person would experience and you know the hope is that that would allow them to uh, more readily uh, quit smoking which has been a big objective, but there's so many applications like that. Um, so that it's really hard to say where the, you know, where the technology ends and where the, you know, where the treatment begins that they're so completely integrated at this point.
1: And last but not least, this is someone that I got introduced to through um, Jesse Draper, Je- Janica Alvarez, who's the CEO and co-founder of Naya health. She was talking about, um, her upcoming South by Southwest panel, which is FemTech Post Trump, I believe Jesse actually is on there, and wanted her to talk a little bit about her experience as being a female entrepreneur and looking to raise money and what that process looked like, and you know all the trials and tribulations that came with that.
2: I think the reality is is that you know two percent of funding last year went to women led companies. Um, we only have seven percent of venture capitalists who are women, and I'm not saying that going to a female venture capitalist is going to guarantee you funding. I think that there are a whole other list of challenges, I think, for them that they face. So that's probably a a separate conversation. Um, I think for me, my journey has been fairly positive. I think that we have struggled with uh, getting people to take our business seriously, because we do have a product that is unique for women. And I'm, I'm talking specifically about the breast pump. So oftentimes, when I'm pitching the business opportunity, a lot of distraction occurs. And it's all around the breast pump. I think Uh, individuals get very stuck on the breast pump they don't understand it they'll never need to use it Um, is it really a need and and they ask these questions because they just they don't know a lot about it and they never will and so they oftentimes will rely on a sister a wife a friend and they basically let these people around them you know make a decision for them uh, or at least heavily impact their decision making process And so, you know, that in itself is a little bit frustrating for us because we feel like, you know, it goes well beyond the pump. Um, The pump was just a really interesting way for us to insert ourselves in a family very early on and gain that trust. And so if you look at the entire business in the market that we're really targeting, it's a $30 billion market here in the U.S. alone. It's growing very uh, fast every year. We have a really interesting technology and really a a good platform to uh, insert ourselves into that, that huge market. I feel like oftentimes because of the pump and the fact that There's anatomy involved, and there's all these other things involved. People get distracted, and they they often move away from the fact that this is actually a really amazing business opportunity with a high percentage of of return uh, or instance return. And so I think that that's something that you know we've encountered, and it's been challenging. You know, I've shared a lot of my experiences with Emily Chang, Bloomberg um, follow up article on the New Yorker. It's just products in general. I think that women are leading or innovating on are just not getting the attention they need in order to further grow their business.
1: So thank you for listening. This is Aaron Strout, CMO of W2O Group and the host of the What to Know podcast. This has been a little bit of a walk down memory lane. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and hope you keep listening to future episodes. And if you have episodes that you'd like us to, or guests that you'd like us to focus on, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can reach me at Aaron, I'm sorry, at Astrout at W2O Group.com or you can ping me on Twitter at Aaron Strout. Thanks so much.
2: Want more episodes of What to Know? We post a new episode every Thursday. Subscribe on iTunes, the podcast app, the Stitcher app, or Spotify, and view the podcast page at w2group.com slash whattoknow.